Hello and welcome to our podcast named Detours. This podcast embraces the unexpected twists and turns that shapes the journeys of our lives that God sends us down. I'm your host and fellow traveler, Mike. I'm here with my beautiful wife, Deb, and we invite you to join us on this exploration of uncharted territories we encounter along the way. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode. Welcome to season number two of our Detours podcast. I am across from my beautiful wife, Deb. Hi, guys. And we are here today to start a brand new topic. Uh, As a uh, guest for season number two, I've actually brought in my father, Steve Snyder. Say hello to everyone, Steve. Hello, everyone. Nice to meet you all. So we have brought you in as a guest uh, to talk uh, talk about a very specific topic. So uh, to our audience, uh, I love Christian apologetics. And the number one question, the most common question you get is, if God is so good, why do bad things happen to good people? And Dad, we brought you in to talk about kind of some of your testimony because you have a very unique version of that question that that you and mom have lived out, which is, if Jesus loves me, how could he ever take my child? Because I did lose a brother. Uh, You did lose a son. So today we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at those two questions. If God is so good, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, And specifically for you, that version of that question, if Jesus loves me, how could he possibly take my child. So uh, when when was Stuart born? Stuart was the name of my little brother. Right. So when when was Stuart born? Let's let's get some of the backstory here. Sure. He was born March 13th of 1984. And he was born what? So that's the, I was three and a half years old. Right. Uh, when he was born. And were you guys planning on having a second child? Absolutely. Um, Once we made the decision to have a family, I had grown up as an only child, and my wife was one of four, and we both completely wanted at least two kids. So once we had you here, the plan was definitely to have number two, and we worked really hard to space them out so that college tuition worked out better. (laughs) Smart. And and thankfully, timing-wise, it worked out like it was supposed to. Okay. Okay. And and so talk to us about Stuart and everything kind of leading up to um, his birth. What was what was happening? Were, were there any indications that he was sick? What was your mentality? Was this just, um, you know, just you've been here, done this before uh, when you had me? What, what was kind of your mentality going into it? Yeah, I think as a general rule, everything seemed pretty normal. We knew what we were expecting. You know, the idea, uh, when you were born, you were born with a breech birth, and so they had to do a C-section. So in those days, the doctors said if you had one C-section, they had to all be C-sections. So we were prepared in advance for that. Um but there was a small voice inside of me that 
I still remember, in fact, one day my secretary and I were having a long talk, and she said, are you really excited about another child? And I said, yeah, I really am. But I, I won't be satisfied until I know that everything's okay. It, I just had a f- kind of a funny feeling. Father's but, intuition? Oh, yeah, I, I guess it was that. I mean, you know, uh, I just had a, a surprisingly, I guess, concern that something might not be right. But I couldn't put my finger on it. The doctors all said everything was great. As a matter of fact, when he was born, when Stuart was born, the doctors immediately deemed him healthy, correct? Correct. So when he uh, when he was born, you know, there were no signs whatsoever that there were any problems. And it wasn't till probably two or three hours later that any problems came to light. And, and what happened two or three hours later? Well, we'd gone through this the C-section, and um, as a part of the C-section, we had made a decision two was enough. So the doctors had tied Sandra's tubes off so that she would never get pregnant again. When they finished that, they sent her to recovery. I went off and made phone calls to the relatives because we, we did not know in advance if it was a boy or a girl. So, you know, I had to call them and say, hey, we got a boy. Everything's fine. And we met back in the in the room, right? And we both said, I don't know about you, but I'm tired. This was stressful. Let's take a nap. And Sandra was under. You were tired. Oh, I was tired. <laughs> she was tired. Sandra, well, no, Sandra was still <laughs> groggy from the from the uh, anesthesia, but we both fell asleep. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and this lady comes in that we'd never seen before, and introduces herself as a pediatrician on the staff of the hospital. And she said, "Mr. And Mrs. Snyder." Um, we've observed some concerns about your child. Um, he's turning blue. Mm. Um, we believe that to be a heart problem. And as we speak, he's being loaded into an ambulance and taken to Loyola University Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois, because they have a staff there that can actually do a good diagnosis and figure out what the problem is. So that's when the detour begins. That was the very first moment of the first detour. Of the first detour. Wow. So, Deb, as a mom, where does your head go if if something like that happens? I'm freaking out. You're taking my baby. Why are you taking this baby to another hospital? How am I getting over there? I think the urgency of the situation would put me in a state of frenzy. And to complicate things even more... Mom had just had a C-section, so she couldn't move. So she gets word that Stuart is sick, and he's being moved to another hospital, but yet she she can't do anything. She has to lay there, and you have to be the middleman, right? Yeah. The, the, oh, you know, Lord. I can't imagine. And, and you know, I, I would say to you that whatever we discuss is always from my perspective as the father, which I think is significantly different than the perspective from the mother. And I, Deb, I'm sure you can relate to that, but the idea of taking my child and I have no control, I can't be there. um, I can't hear what the doctors say. I I can't imagine the emotion that, that my wife must've felt. Yeah. That, (laughs) 
you know, Deb and I, when we got long before we got married, we had the conversation that we as a couple didn't want to have kids. So I, I don't have any children. And the closest thing I could ever even relate to would, would be the dog that I had years uh. and years ago where you can't communicate with a dog. Spoken like a non-parent. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And you know what, when he was, when, when he was passing away, that, that was, that was gut-wrenching, but it, sure. I mean, that, that's worlds different than a child, especially as a man, I, I would think you want to protect that. That's your job is to protect. And here you're, you're completely helpless. So what is your anxiety level? Oh, well, first of all, the whole idea of not knowing when they start talking about your baby's turning blue, that's really scary. Um, and you know, it, it, unlike anything I've ever experienced, all of a sudden, I had so many emotions going through me, and it was panic. It was, you know, I, I was trying to pray, but I was just being bombarded by all the different emotions and stuff, and it made it really hard to even pray. Um, but the good news is that um, I do think there was a point in time where God sort of gave me a, just an, a feeling. I didn't hear any words or anything saying, I have this. But it's still, I was panicked. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and I, th I think something that you touched on there, so many times in that moment, y you don't, y you don't know how to pray, or you don't pray. You certainly don't pray necessarily in the way you think you should. It's probably all of Jesus. I just need help. Please help me. Yep. Y you don't have words because your brain is everywhere. And so you can't articulate a calm prayer. Hey, this is, um, you know, a, a scheduled weekly prayer time that I have. I'm going in my prayer closet and I'm going to pray. It's not that. It's a panicking for sure. parent prayer. Um, for sure. So what, what, do you, what do you and mom, what's the conversation that you have before, obviously, you follow Stuart to Loyola? Very brief. You know, they told us, they said, look, you don't need to rush, Mr. Snyder. It's going to take a couple of hours to to do our diagnosis over there. So you don't need to rush. Well, I want to be there. You know, so it was a very quick conversation. I'm not sure I remember every word of it, but it was like, Sandra, I will call you as soon as I know anything. You know, in those days, we didn't have cell phones. So oh, that's right. Know, we couldn't text. We couldn't do anything. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, I got to the hospital, and they sent me up to the, what's called the cardiac catheterization lab. And I sat there, you know, for two hours probably waiting. It was a, two hours feeling like two months. Um, so it was crazy. But it was a very short conversation because I felt I really needed to be at that hospital with my child. Sure. And did you have conversations with God? Like, did the question, God, God, if you're so good, why is this happening to me right now? Did, do you even Not have time? Not at that moment. You, you, don't, you don't have time to think about anything. Yeah, too much you, is happening, probably. In the moment, you're, you're, in, a, you're in a panic state. Um, I couldn't wrap my mind. You know, I find that when God speaks to me, it's normally when I'm very quiet and I can just listen. There was no quietness, you know, my brain was racing a thousand miles an hour. So no, I heard nothing like that or thought nothing of that. Okay. So you get to Loyola 
what happens. You're sitting in a waiting room, right? Again, this is back almost, we're pushing 40 years ago. Yep. You're sitting in a waiting room. And what happens is that does a doctor come out and introduce himself? Yep. Hey, are you Mr. Snyder? What yep. does he say to you? Well, he's, you know, he introduced himself um, and he said, I have good news. He said, your son is stable. Everything's fine. He, you know, we're going to be moving him into, we don't have any room in our pediatric ICU unit. So we're going to put him in the prenatal, uh, the neonatal intensive care unit. But he said, let me try to explain to you what is going on here. And trust me, I have no medical background at all at this point. But he says, your son has what's called transposition of the great arteries. And that he might as well have spoken a, a, a totally different language to me because it meant absolutely nothing. But sure. to his credit, he got a piece of paper out and a pencil, and he started to draw a picture for me Aww. of what a normal heart looks like and what Stuart's heart looked like. And I just, you know, I'm like, oh. then you have a million questions. So can you articulate what was drawn on that piece of paper? What is transposition of the great arteries? Sure. So if you think about a normal heart, there are four chambers, two upper and two lower. When the blood comes into the heart from the body, the heart pumps it to the lungs. And the lungs oxygenate that blood, return it back into the heart where it crosses over to the other side and gets pumped to the body. So your body has oxygenated blood. And when it's all been pumped, then it returns back to the heart. The heart then sends it back to the lungs and so forth. The problem with Stuart was he had two closed circuits. So instead of when the blood came in from the body and it no longer had oxygen, the heart just sent it right back out to the body. Mm. And the other side of the of the heart was taking the, the, the blood from the lungs, fully oxygenated, bringing it back into the heart and returning it back to the lungs. So there was no oxygen getting to the blood that was going to the rest of the, the body, which is why he was turning blue. Sure. And at that point, I said, well, how frequently do you deal with this? He said, there's... About 1,150 babies a year born in the United States with transposition, which seemed like pretty remote to me. So then I had to ask the question, what do we do? What's that? My, yeah, I, I think I would ask, what's the survival rate? We talked about that. The, it, the answer to your question is, if they do nothing, it's like a 95% of the babies will die within a year. Oh Can't make it. With surgery then the, those odds increase dramatically in favor of life. In fact, right now, um, about 80% of the children born with, with um, transposition live at least 20 to 30 years, and they're, they're still studying it. But the, the encouragement I walked away with is, okay, this is fixable. So he explained that here's the process, Steve. We have to wait nine months to get Stuart to get Stuart to a, a size where his heart's big enough to do the operation. When a baby's born, the heart's not much bigger than a golf ball. Wow, that's small. Yeah, that's that small. And so by the time you know you get nine months into it, 
they're big enough that they can go in and do the surgery. Okay. So, you know, the answer was, look, Steve, we fixed him. You know, so the question becomes, they also did a procedure while he was in the cardiac cath lab. Right. They had to do a procedure before he went home the very first time. They right? did it the night that he arrived. Okay. Yeah. And describe that. What What was that procedure? So, I can't tell you the name of it, but typically between the heart, the two chambers of the heart on the top, there is a, a small little hole. And they take um, basically an angioplasty balloon and they feed it up through the groin, into the through the vessels, into the heart. And they probe and they run that angioplasty through that little tiny hole. Then they inflate the balloon and they pull it back through and they literally rip a hole between the two sides of the heart that allows that blood just to kind of slop back and forth and get some oxygen into the parts going to the body. But it's, it's intended to buy time. That's right? all it is. It, that's all it is, is by nine months worth of time. That's correct. So did they, obviously you have to approve that procedure, right? So the doctor comes in, explains. Actually, let me, let me interrupt. They had already done that procedure. They had no choice but to do it. Oh. So when he came out, they had already completed that procedure. Okay. So Stuart had already had his very first heart surgery Hours after being born. Correct. Um, so at what point do you call mom? As soon as the doctor finished describing everything to me. I and he had her. done the procedure. The procedure's already over. Okay. So yeah, they had Stuart in the cath lab for, I don't know, three or four hours. And during mm-hmm. that time, they did the diagnosis, they did the procedure. And when he came out to see me, all that was complete. So then it was a matter of, he also explained to me what the next step would be. So when we get to nine months, they did this surgery called the mustard procedure, named after a, a doctor named Dr. Mustard, who invented it. It was invented in the 1950s. And it was, it was very scary sounding. They opened the heart up. And they rebuilt the inside of the heart. They changed all the walls around. And that was the preferred way. The easy way, theoretically, to do it would be just to take the two major arteries, cut them, switch them over, and hook them up again, and he'd be fine. And actually, starting in about the 1980s, that became the preferred method. But the mustard procedure was the method during the time we were dealing with it. Okay. So what's, are, are you calmed down a bit at that point because he's already gotten out of the surgery? And like, what what is the demeanor of the doctor? Is the demeanor of the doctor, Steve, we got this. Is it, hey, this is up in the air? What, what is, yeah, what is your anxiety his level doctor, at that point? We had an amazing cardiologist. This This man was, his bedside manner was excellent. And he said to me, Steve, we have this under control. Stuart's going to go home and we're going to watch him for a week or so, but he's going to go home. He can live basically a, a normal baby life. You know, he's not going to be running up and down the steps or anything because he's not big enough. But he said he'll live a normal baby life until nine months from now. We do the procedure. And, you know, we, the, the surgeon here at this hospital has done this before. We know what we're doing. 
you know, we think there's going to be a great outcome. And so, you know, did I feel like we had won the battle? Man, maybe the battle, but the war was still in front of us. But you don't know this. You just think, well, we won this battle. But there was a there was a definite sense of relief because honestly, when he came through the door, I didn't know whether he was going to say your son didn't make it or I just didn't know what to expect. But it, when they talk about a heart and turning blue, that really scared me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah the difference between heart issues and maybe a child dying of cancer, cancer is a long, slow decay. When it's a heart issue, that can be instant. An instant death, so you're you're on pins and needles. So you call mom at this point after yep. the doctor leaves, and you just kind of give her the lowdown of everything. I gave her what I could, and I said, "I'm coming over because I want to." You know, you can't really explain transposition adequately without drawn pictures. I wanted to. I actually took the picture that, that the doctor gave me and took it with me to show it to Sandra, so she could get a pretty good understanding of what was going on. And so I then after I was done there, I turned around and went back to Stewart's Hospital and stayed through the night there. And uh, so that's kind of what happened. What happened when you went back to see Mom? You know, let's be honest. You know, you, you'd like to hear everything firsthand. You know, she wasn't able to ask the questions that she wanted to ask. You know, I, I got my questions answered, and she would ask me, well, what about this? I didn't ask that. And women tend to have, you know, three times the amount of questions because we process differently and For speak sure. a lot more words than a man does in a day. So she probably had a ton of questions. She did. And, and yeah. she, she kept asking me questions I'm like, we didn't talk about that. We didn't, cause, Why didn't you, you know, ask that, she probably well, oh, said. <laughs> a million times. You know, what's life going to be like when we take him home? You know, what, what do we have to do differently? I don't know. <laughs> I said, we got plenty of time to learn all of that, right? So by the time I had gotten back there, he was in the neonatal intensive care unit, which is basically a really cool unit because it was a brand new part of this hospital. It had 50 beds. And you see all these little teeny tiny babies couple pounds that were preemies and stuff, but they have one nurse to one baby mm -hmm. in that environment. My son was So he, he was getting the best care he could possibly get. And what was so amazing was, you know, in those days we didn't have the internet. Today I could go to the internet and I could go to YouTube and say, you know, transposition of the great arteries, and I get to see a video clip that would show what was wrong, you know. We didn't have that. So these nurses were awesome. They would go home and make Xerox copies of pages out of their med school books and bring them in and sit with me. That's so kind. And I, I sat with a, on a bar stool at the end of the isolate where, the, where Stuart was laying, and every time they would take any kind of a test, whether it was a, a blood test or whatever it might be, Explain to me what that means. What does the BUN count mean? Well, I don't understand what that is. Well, by the time, you know, everything was done, I felt like I knew enough. I, you know, I knew I could read the results of the tests when they brought them in. And they would just hand them to me and say, here, take a look. So I, I learned a lot. But, boy, if we'd have had the Internet in those days, uh, it would have been awesome. But, you know, but that could be a blessing and a curse in a certain respect. You know, have you ever seen, like, someone freak out and look it up online and then they think they have this disease because, you know, 
WebMD said it looks like this and that. It could have been probably something that produced more questions and maybe more fear. So it's kind of like a two-edged sword in a sense. You're right. (laughs) The interesting part was Loyola is a teaching hospital. It's an educational hospital. And so when Dr. made his rounds, he had a half a dozen students following him. And there would be tremendous amount of dialogue between the students, and he would say, what do you see of the doctors? Well, I could listen because he was teaching, and I could learn the same time he was teaching them. I, I didn't have all the, the technical skills. Sure. But I learned a lot. Um, and so periodically I would go to the phone and call Sandra and say, here's what I learned this time. How uh, long was she in bed rest while this was happening? I think four four days, something like that. That's a long time when your baby's not with you. That's and a long I, time. I remember the day that we got to take her. So the first thing that happens is you got to prepare them for what they're going to see. The visual of what you see when you see your baby yes. is overwhelming because he's got, you know, just a tip. Think about a parent or something that's been in the hospital and they've got some a couple of IVs. They might have a heart monitor, all that. Multiply that times 20. Yeah, my son was in the ICU. Okay. I remember walking in there going, what is this? So I'm, I'm trying to tell Sandra, I said, now look, you're going you're gonna to freak out when you see what you see because it's overwhelming. And I said, I want you to be prepared for that so it doesn't shock you. And she, she um, you know, was... was Totally freaked out. I mean, when she looked at it, she said, is he going to really be able to go home? We don't have all this stuff. Well, the answer was yes, thankfully. So describe for the audience what you saw. Well, they, you know, they have a variety of, of different monitors that monitor, you know, just the simple EKG, but all kinds of... Uh, Hoses. I mean, I, I don't even know how to describe it, Michael, breathing except tubes. to say, yeah, there's br- breathing tubes, there's oxygen on his face, there's, um, you know, just, and all kinds of machinery around him. And so, you know, you, you just can't even begin to imagine that that many things could be hooked up to a little baby that's mm-hmm. maybe 18 inches long. There's no room for anything else. It looks like a science experiment. It yeah. is uncanny how many things are happening at one time and so you know she walked in and i think after a a deep gasp you know she's like so how is my baby and can i hold him no you can't hold him just yet but you will be able to here before too long and so you know i think Stuart was in the hospital the first time for about nine days and, you know, you obviously before you go in there, you have to scrub and you put on a surgical gown. And, I mean, it, it's an ordeal just to get in. Um, but as time went on, they begin to disconnect some of the stuff because they're confident everything's stable. And so it got to a point where she could actually hold him. And I think she was petrified um, to hold him like, you know, I hope he doesn't break and I don't want to do something wrong here. All the things that you would normally do with a healthy baby, you know, the idea of cradling the baby in your arms and rocking him back and forth, you're going, 
can I do that? Right. Am I going to do something to mess something up? And then here's a part, Deb, that you can probably relate to that I try to relate to, but I can't. I know Sandra sat there the whole time saying, what did I do during pregnancy to cause this problem? And, mm. you know, the doctors will explain this is not a hereditary situation at all. It literally happens in the first few days after the baby is conceived. And there's a single molecule and it folds itself over and it folds itself over again to create the four chambers of the heart. And it folded itself over in the wrong order. And that's what caused it. Wow. Had nothing to do with what she did. But you know what? One thing I do know is no matter what they tell you, you still question yourself. I, I was just going to say that. I, you know, there are certain things, certain instances where you can say whatever you want, but that person's still going to question, could I have done anything any differently? And I think that's absolutely, as, as men, I don't know that we can relate the same way. No, cannot. Guaranteed. I, you know, it's in your body. It's it's. There's always this... I don't know if dads have this, but there's mom guilt. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a day where there hasn't been mom guilt, where, again, that thought of if I only maybe did something this way as opposed to that way. And, you know, I tried to do everything I could during pregnancy to have a healthy, happy baby. And, um, you know, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck six times. He was choking in the womb when he came out. And, you know... I just thought, oh, my God, what is, what's going to happen to this kid? And did I, yeah, you know, did I do anything wrong? Yep. And I didn't have that first bonding experience. There's something very beautiful in, in that first few moments of life when the baby and the mom get to bond. It's, it's the most um, bonding that she's ever going to have with her child is to be able to hold her child who's been in her body for nine months. Um, and when that's taken from you, there's this disconnect. I think they even have research that talks about babies that don't have that first birth bond, what happens, you know, emotionally to them. Um, so I was really devastated. And I'm sure, you know, not knowing is he okay made Sandra just... I was in a constant state of fight or flight, like that panic feeling in your belly, that choking in your your neck, and you're like, oh, everything's tensed up because you have no idea what's going to happen next. And I didn't have Jesus. I wasn't saved. <laughs> so I had nothing to turn to. Well, thankfully we were. And thankfully, you know, I, 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 I don't know how people go through these kinds of events without being able to pray. I, I can't imagine that. Um, Lots of tears. And I can tell you this much, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later on, but at the point in time they pass away, how you recover from the loss of a child without Jesus, I can't even begin to think about. Yeah, I I don't understand. How do you conjure up hope? You know, even, even, so so let's talk about the church. You were part of... Were they called Calvary Church at the time? Because I know they changed their names. Calvary Temple. It was Calvary Temple when we, at that point in time, yes. Okay, so that that was a church that, that we were a part of there in Chicago, uh, suburbs of Chicago. The first call that you make is always going to be to mom when, you know, when, when Stuart 
is is diagnosed. At what point do you call Pastor Schmidgall? Always he phone was, call number that two. Was, that was well, no, because I had to call my parents and Sandra's parents. But he okay. was like call he was number. at the top. Yeah, he was he was a big part of it, and I can tell you. Um, Pastor Schmidgall got to a point where he knew his way around the <laughs> hospital pretty well um, because he made many visits there during those the, the, the two different times that we spent at the hospital. Yeah, I, I can tell you, I, I work for the audience. I, I work at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. We see every aspect of life. You dedicate babies. You do weddings. You do funerals. We counsel couples we counsel people through divorces you literally working at a church you see every aspect of life and and this is one of those aspects where it's hard to be coached how to how to deal with someone how to help someone that's that's going through something like this so for pastor schmigal did he drop a, what what time of day did you get the the diagnosis and kind of the explanation? Early evening. It was okay, maybe so it was, six o'clock in the evening. So did Pastor Schmidt come over that evening, or did he wait till the next day? He waited till the next day. Okay, so he comes over the next morning. Yeah, probably mid morning, noontime, something like that. Okay, and and does he go to mom or does he go to you? He came to the hospital where I was with the with, with Stuart. Stuart. Okay. Oh, wow. Does he even have anything to say to you? Because so many people ask that, you know, ask those hard-hitting questions. If if Jesus loves me, how could he do something like this? Does does Pastor Schmidgall? What is he saying to you? What is his demeanor? You know, first of all, I wasn't asking that question at that point in time. Um, You're still caught up in the whirlwind, maybe? Or No, I was more that's concerned what I would about, think. Pastor, I want you to pray that Stuart gets through all this. Right. Um, you know, I mean, if, every, if, if there's a happy ending to the story, it's not so concerning to me as to why did this happen. I mean, I, I do think, you know, that it improves your faith to go through stuff like this because... You have no one to lean on but Jesus. And and so, you know, my biggest concern was, I need you to pray for my baby. And he did. Who's ministering to mom at this point? Like, is she just by herself in a hospital room wondering what's going on? Pretty much. Oh, my God, my heart. I mean, I I would make trips back and forth. I put a lot of miles on between the hospitals. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, But her admonition to me is, you need to be with Stuart. Is I'll be fine. Is anyone from the church coming to see her? Yes, we we actually had some friends okay. um, that would come to visit her, and and Michael's best friend was a, a kid that was born just a few days before Michael was, and mm. they were our best friends, and so Bob and Dawn would come and visit Sandra and keep her company. But Sandra's mother was in town to take care of Michael while this was all going on, not knowing we were going to be there for two weeks. <laughs> but uh, she was babysitting Michael, and she couldn't come. So um, it was pretty much she was on her own. Wow. that That's hard. I'm glad she had friends. I'm glad she had Dawn and, and Bob and people from the church because I just can't fathom what it's like to, to not have anybody around. Well, I, I think she spent an awful lot of the time 
by herself. And it had to be, you know, just totally brutal to sit there because you have nothing to think about. But but the issue. But what I don't know. Right. And, you know, I, I'm sure that the, the moment she saw her baby, even though there were all kinds of wires and hoses and all that hooked up, there was a sense of, okay, now I have some control here. And, you know, I mentioned that the, the nurses would make copies out of their med school books and stuff. Every night when I would go see her, I would take whatever they gave me mm. so that she could read. And, and she was asking, I'm sure, questions of the nurses and stuff where she was. What do you know about this? Yeah, I would um, think. But unless you really know what you're talking about and you're a cardiac nurse. Yeah, you don't know what you, you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Got it. So the church, so Pastor Schmigal shows up, and that's on day number two. So what happens to get Stuart ready to go home? What What is that kind of wind down time in the hospital round number one? What does that look like? It was just basically making sure he was stable. Um, they wanted to make sure that the oxygen levels stabilized. They started talking to us about what does care look like when you get home, which, quite frankly, wasn't a whole lot different than it was for you when we brought you home. I mean, they're like, look, try to treat this as much like a normal child as you can. Well, easier said than done. I mean, you had your own crib in, in, in the baby's room, and that's where you slept. Stuart was in a bassinet at the foot of the bed, and I can tell you between Sandra and I, more, more towards Sandra than me, I don't think Sandra ever slept more than an hour at a time that she wasn't up looking to see if he was still alive. alive. Yeah. Wow. So how taxing was the nine months at home? If you're sleeping an hour, you, yeah. you're not entering REM sleep for nine consecutive months. You've got to be absolutely exhausted. Um, you adjust to it. You know, it, what was interesting was life became sort of normal. So, for example, when Stuart was about seven months, you know, I asked his doctor, I said, what do you think if we took Stuart to Disney World? He goes, go ahead. No problem. Really? I said, can he fly on an airplane? Oh, sure. You know, that's what they kept trying to tell you. Life should be normal. You know, there aren't things that you, I mean, you know, what do you do with a baby? You're not going to be roughhousing with it or anything. Yeah, do what you want to do. So, you know, we went to Disney World and we went to the beach afterwards and spent a few days at the beach. Yeah, um, you have another kid who's yeah. He who was needs bouncing around like a like a you know Mickey Mouse to. fan. You know, he was having a great time, and Stuart was in a stroller, and you know it was all good. You, you got to a point where that you, you always knew it was there, but you got to a point where you did sort of relax. But I would tell you that Sandra, more so than I did, would be very, very much protective of the child overnight. You know, she knew, look, you got a job, you got to sleep. But even so, you know, you, you just sleep. I mean, you, you, you sleep very lightly. You hear Everything. the slightest little squeak mm -hmm. and you jump immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Stuart sneezes and you, oh. you have a heart attack. Oh, oh my goodness. Or if, even if he just squeaks, you know, it's yeah. like, what was that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? 
So you, you, know, you go through all of that. And, um, but actually, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as you might think because you, you did get to a point where, you know, you as his brother were his, you were his major entertainment. You, you did everything you could and you could make that kid smile all the time. And Aww. it was, yeah, it was, you know, they were best buds, you know, and, and, oh, I have lots of pictures of you got, you kissing Stuart everywhere on his head, his cheeks, and you just loved him. And that seemed to make things a lot better because part of what we hadn't really talked about here is saying to the doctors, so with another kid at home, what do we need to know about in terms of the way that he treats the baby? You know, I mean, right? Because you know he's four years old, roughly, and you know, boys will be boys. Yeah, you know, you're mm-hmm. you're doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and and they're like, look, he's not gonna he's not gonna die from this. We got him stable. It's okay. Just don't let him punch him or anything. And like, <laughs> oh, jeez. You know that that never happened. Um, so you know. It was it was always really a lot of fun to see the two of them together because, you know, while Stuart wasn't old enough to talk or anything, he had a really great laugh. And, Aww. you know, Michael would be doing anything he possibly could to make Stuart laugh. I mean, that was like the game of the day. And that kind of stuff helped you forget about what you were really normal. facing, you know. Right. I mean, you always kind of in the back of your head, go, we're, you were doing a countdown saying, okay, Nine months, eight months, seven months, six months, five months, three. When we get to Disney World, we're like two and a half months away. And I remember I took Stuart out on the beach late one night. I couldn't sleep. And it was, I don't know, it was probably close to midnight. The moon was out. It was really pretty. And I took Stuart with me. And I just stood on the beach. And I can I can remember saying to myself and to him, Stuart, I hope that the next time we come back here, that you can walk on the beach by yourself. And I, I, I always hope there will be another day when we return. Of course, we never did. But I still remember saying that to him. Because you are aware of the fact that you're facing major open-heart surgery. And that that's a concern. Of course. How, how did you, when you brought Stuart home, how did you explain to me did you ex- even attempt to explain medically what was going on, or you just no. kind of say, "No, be gentle." No, no. But I mean, do, do you say, "Hey, your brother is sick, so you have to be gentle." I'm not saying, "Hey, the, he, your brother's got transposition of heart." And I'm not saying that, but do you just say to me, "Hey, Stuart is sick, so you you got to be gentle around him." Yeah, to some degree, um, you would be gentle to any baby, you know. You, I don't know that there was a lot of difference. I mean, we knew it, and but you know, you never did anything stupid, and and so you know, why introduce something that makes the kid worry? You know, I mean, I, you know, just treat him like a baby. You know, and you were really good about that. You never got rough with him or any of that kind of stuff, and you know, so that really wasn't in my eyes, a big problem. Sandra might have felt differently, but... Well, sometimes babies, you know, toddlers get jealous. Like, there's another baby in the house, and... So... That was never the case with him. Okay, that's cool. He, he, he 
he wanted a, a he, he loved his brother. I mean, they, they, that the, the toughest part of this whole ordeal is when we get on the other side of things, when, when Stuart passes away, the bigger problem was how do I tell his brother? Yeah. And we'll talk about that later, but you know, at this point in time, they were, you know, they were two peas, two in, peas a in a pod. That's a great description. <laughs> they were two peas in a pod for sure. Yeah. And they had a lot of fun together. It's amazing. So how how did your marriage change coming home during those nine months? What are the late night conversations when no one else is around and it's just you and your wife and and this baby that you as a man, you vowed to protect mom. You, you, you are a protector. You're there and you want to protect that baby. What are those vulnerable private conversations? What are you saying to one another? How does it impact communication in a marriage? Great question. Yeah, you know, I think our communication probably went up in that situation, but it was never about she and I. It was about the kids, you know, and, and Stuart. And, and you know, what, what you know, we, we would talk, what's, what's it going to be like with the surgery? And, and Stuart went through a couple things. He got a cyst on his nose, and we had to take him to a um, dermatologist. A, a dermatologist. And, you know, they were concerned that they, you know, they'd like to cut it off, but they didn't want, they couldn't give them medication like they wanted to. And, but they, they got it done. But, you know, even the smallest of things, you actually, you know, you worry about it. And, and the, the whole idea of the, our communication during that time was so more, more focused on our children than it was on the two of us. Well, sometimes in marriage, when tragedy hits like that, you you don't feel like a team anymore, and you feel like one person is against the other. And it's really a beautiful thing that you came together to, because something like that could draw a marriage apart or draw it closer together, for sure. I, I would tell you that that was more prevalent after Stuart passed away. Um, you know, the doctors even told us, you know, you guys got to make sure you communicate because if you don't, it's very common to see marriages break up because they don't want to talk to each other. Oh. Um, and, but that wasn't the case here. You know, all of our discussion was, you know, we really tried to keep everything as normal as we could for the, for the two kids. And, you know, as, as we, we got to a point where it was probably in November and the, the doctor said, all right, we have a decision we have to make and you, there's not a right answer or wrong answer. Here's the, here's the question. We can schedule surgery for the early part of December and Stuart will be home for Christmas or you can have Christmas and then we'll schedule it in January. And we talked about it and we, we, you know, we didn't give an answer right on the spot. We, we, we really needed to talk about that. And we both heavily agreed and said, let's get it over with and have a greatest Christmas ever. Because if that's hanging over our heads, Christmas is going to be really tense oh. and miser miserable. So we made the decision early on to say, all right, we're going to take the early December trip. So you schedule, what do you remember when when was the surgery scheduled for? Was it December first? No, we went I think on December second, and they did a bunch of tests the day before, and the surgery was actually December third. 
Okay. So during the nine months, do you, are, are you expressing concern to mom? Just as the, you know, as that countdown clock gets lower and lower, the feeling has to become overwhelming right before. Oh yeah. Right. We, we, you and I just, you're in town. Uh, we live up here near Cape Canaveral. You're a huge space fan. And we just watched this, I don't know, five episode documentary of the civilians that got launched into space. And it's one thing for them to go through, they had to go through like six months worth of training and they're climbing mountains and they're doing all sorts of things, but they know that, you know, the countdown clock when it reaches zero, they're going to be shot into space. The the couple days before getting on that rocket has got to be completely different. You know it's coming. Emotions start running high. You're having your last meal with your family before the launch. What was the last meal before Stuart going? What what were those last things that stood out in your mind? Maybe it wasn't a meal. Maybe it was a nap. Maybe it was a prayer. What what were those lasts that you remember before he goes in? The biggest thing that I remember that's still emotionally very tough for me was the pediatric unit where Stuart was at had a huge, probably 150-gallon fish tank. And it, Stuart loved the fish tank. We He would always, I would take him to the fish tank, and he would point and make noises he was he loved the fish and the morning of his surgery they you know i took him down to the fish tank and we we were at the fish tank when we saw him bring the gurney in to take him to the operating room and that's the last time i held my son Hmm. what are you thinking crying i want to cry you know, uh, how do you present to yourself the idea that this might be the last second that I see my son? They wheel that gurney into his room, and they, you know, I take him down there, and they start hooking him up, and they gave him a like a sedative to calm him down so that they could do all the things they needed to do, and they're poking him with IVs, and they're doing all kinds of stuff to him. And then they say, okay, let's go. So now you, you know, they take him out of the room, you walk out in the hallway, you're watching, and then, you know, how they have the automatic doors that you hit the button on the wall and the door opens, you see the door open, and they disappear. And you go, this could be the very last second that I see my son alive. And as it turned out, it, it wasn't. But you can't imagine the fear that's in your heart at that moment in time. It, it, it's overwhelming because you you just don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, I, I can't tell you that I remember our last supper at home or our last, you know, I, I mean, those don't have the same memory for me as the fish tank. The fish tank is something that I'll never forget. Where was Sandra? She was, she was actually still back down at the room because we were only maybe – 100 feet from the room, and, and I said, hey, I'm going to take Stuart down to see the fish. You hang out here for, you know, let us know if they need us. And so she was she was down there in Stuart's room, and uh, as soon as I saw him bring that gurney and turn into that room, I knew 
Yeah. All right, let's go, Stuart. And, you know, you, you hug them, you kiss them, you lay them on the bed, and then you just go, everything's out of my control at this point. And at that point in time, you realize that I'm really nothing in this deal anymore. He's in God's hands, and, and uh, boy, I can tell you, for the, the time of the surgery, the whole time he was in there, uh, we were busy praying. Yeah, that, so let, let's, let's save that as the next episode. Sure. So to wrap up this episode, what we're trying to tackle with this season is if God is so good, why do bad things happen to good people through your lens? If God loves me, how does he take my child? Do you, do you ever question God's goodness up until this point? What questions do you have for God? You know, you certainly ask the question, why was he born this way? Why did, you know, things like this happen to other people, not to me. You know, it, it, it was very difficult to understand, but not as difficult as when he passes away, for sure. But I really felt like at that point we had an avenue to live a normal life. You know, that the surgery was going to go fine and everything was going to be cool. And, yeah, you know, I, I just said, you know, God, I got to trust you that you're going to get him through the surgery because, you know, that's the only hope I have is that, but I, I never got, say, angry, for example. I, I never even at that point really that I can remember can question why. It wasn't until he passed away that, you begin to say, why did this happen? Right. So you're highly depending on God's, you know, mighty hand to bring this child out of surgery. So there's yeah, a lot of hope. And, and, you know, as he was going, you know, as this all, was all coming together, I had this great vision in my head that Stuart was going to go through this and everything was going to be grand. And when he came out, you know, and he grew up, we were going to travel around together and give his testimony, and, and I would tell the whole story. And, you know, I, I, I just had this vision that everything was going to be perfect, you know, and that there would be a real story to tell. There was a real story to tell, all right, but it just had a different ending than what I was anticipating. But I still had a fair amount of optimism at that, this point that said, I think it's going to be okay. And, and Sandra? Did she have that same optimism? I'm not sure. Mm. You know, I, I can't tell you to what degree. I mean, we both we both were grateful that it was fixable. Yeah. And we've been assured that 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 it was a it, it's been done before and yes, it works. And you know, I mean if, if your kid goes in and, you know, he has to have his tonsils taken out, it's not a life threatening situation for sure. But you know they're going to come out and be fine afterwards. Yeah, this one you tonsils. worry a little bit, but quite frankly, there wasn't much, you know, I was pretty optimistic, but I always am. Yes, you are a very optimistic man, for sure. And, and this is where, you know, the, when my wife and I, when Deb and I were talking about creating this podcast and this show, people need to understand that 
you never planned for detours. You never, you didn't plan for Stuart. What, when, when you found out that mom was going to have a second child, what did you, what was that picture like in your head? Oh, we're excited. I mean, but it's, is it a, we're going to buy, we're going to move into a house with a white picket fence. We're going to get him a little dog. You know, it, yeah, it was, it was just the, everything was normal. Everything was right on plan. But I think what he's getting at is we make plans in our mind and we have this picture of what the future is going to look like. Do you have that future look? Yeah, and I, you know, most of the time, that well, not most of the time, when it's a really difficult detour, you know, as, as Christians, we can sit here and say, oh, I had to trust God and so on and so forth. I think for the listeners out there, if you're someone that's that's got that question of, if God loves me so much, why did he give my child cancer? Or, or you know, just, just any variation of that. The peace of Christ isn't, it, it's a verb. It, it's a choice, and it's a difficult choice to make. You're, you know, when God asks you to go down a path that you don't want to go down, it, it gets messy. It, it's difficult. And, and that's the point of this season. It's the point of last season. It's the whole point of this show is, is you'll hear we, we do say things like, well, you just got to trust God. And it's very easy and it's very quick to say that. But it's completely different to live it and to learn how to do it. And through the rest of this season, we're going to go into the testimony of the, the actual procedure itself, what happens, what goes through everyone's mind. There are all sorts of anomalies, I guess we'll call them for now, that happen, all sorts of curveballs during Stewart's procedure and afterwards. And it really was a roller coaster, was it not? Totally. And that roller coaster lasted for, what, 10, 11, 11 days? 11 days. 11 days. And so, again, you know, as, as Christians now, we're, we're almost 40 years removed from this. We'll, we'll tell you things like, trust God, and, and so on and so forth. But it's because we're 40 years removed from it. You, you definitely say it in the moment. But you have a totally, I have a totally different appreciation and definition for the word peace now than I did so long ago. And it's because of things, it's because of detours. You know, the one thing I'll say about detours, you have a certain plan for your life and you follow that plan and you feel very comfortable with it. And all of a sudden you have to make a right turn or left turn. What you got to realize is there are things along the way on that detour that are real blessings from God that you don't expect. And you probably wouldn't have experienced had it not been for the detour. Now, do they offset the death of your child? Of course not. But as we will talk about in future episodes, God blessed us in some incredibly cool ways that I don't think would have ever happened. And so you, it, when you say trust God, you got to trust God to say, okay, when something like this happens, God, you got to you got to carry me, you got to help me, and He does. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. The Bible verse that everybody knows, but this is assigning it in context. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't be afraid because you are with me. A, you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. And he is with you. And and that's what we want to talk about in these upcoming episodes is as that door closes and those doctors have rolled Stuart into, you know, the operating room, you guys have officially entered the valley. Maybe the first nine months there were some some valleys there, but this is the valley. Um, and everything at that point is completely out of your control. And, and, and that's when, you know, I, I think some people even question whether or not God's in control. I, I've seen that before. I have as well. Yeah. People often question if God is in control during those moments. It's easy looking at the world right now. I mean, it looks like the world is just falling apart. And it's so easy to go, God, where are you in this? This, this is falling apart at the seams. And and you have to hang your, your head on this. Know your Bible, man. There are going to be verses that pull you out of things that you hang your head on. You know, the Bible does not return null and void. And and if you don't know it, if you don't know the Bible, if you don't search for God during these detours, get on it, man, because... It's an anchor for the soul. It, it's an anchor. It's hope. Uh, you know, the, the hope that we have is that Stuart is running around in heaven right now. And we're preparing ourselves to go see him. Absolutely. And for those people that are out here, you may not have lost a child. You may have lost a spouse. You may have been married for 50 years and and your spouse passes away. Or you may have lost a sibling. Could be any number of things. It doesn't matter if it's a baby or it's an adult. If that person means something to you and, and you relied on that person in your life, you're now on a detour. And the question you're asking about, well, wait a minute, I prayed for my mom who had cancer and she died anyway. How do I deal with that? Well, death is certain 100% of the time. Yep. So I think on that note, we will uh, end this episode. Let's let's give a quick outline of kind of what we're going to be doing this, this season. So you're going to be back for at least a few more episodes, a, a handful of them. Uh, we're going to go into in the next episode, we're going to go into the actual procedure itself. Um, Stuart makes it through the procedures, but as I mentioned, there were a lot of curveballs. Uh, he ends up passing away on day 11. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to get into that on the next episode is just all the things that happen, all the roles of different people in our lives. But, you know, it was one detour after another. Uh, and then we're going to get into in another episode, we think, uh, the funeral itself and just, uh, another episode on all the emotions and how to deal with all the emotions when, when you lose a child, uh, what else? Was there anything else that we... Well, we're, we're going to talk about, I think, you know, one of the things we really want to make sure we focus on is what can you do to deal with the grief in your life? How do you process grief? And how do you take this event that's so tragic and somehow turn it into something positive? 
Yeah, that that's absolutely coming up. And I think uh, we also talked about, you know, th- this is a very, it comes across initially as a very niche discussion because you may not have a sick child and so on and so forth, but we're absolutely going to dedicate a show, at least one show on how to support someone that's going through a tremendous trial like this. There are things you say and there are things you, you don't, don't say. say. Right. Job's friends are, are front of mind on things you don't say and so on and so forth. So uh, and it's amazing, you know, looking back 40 years ago, I can still tell you of certain things that maybe to that person at that time seemed so trivial that were so wonderful to me. Mm. You know, it, it, it was a, a simple action they might have taken. And we'll talk about that because, there, as Michael said, there are so many things that you can do to support people, and they do need your support. That's all they have right now is that support of their friends and family. Yeah, and, and understand nobody can carry the burden except the people going through it. it it's not the same for everyone else, but there is so much to be said about just knowing that someone is there and they're with you when you're going through it. It just changes everything. People that are acquaintances become friends and even friends for life because of things like this. So we're, we're going to spend some time on that as well. But uh, we're going to stick through this. This is going to be hopefully an amazing season. We've got a lot of great things that we want to talk through. Um, but for now, we are going to sign off. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, tune in on the next episode where we talk through Stuart's procedure and the recovery afterwards. But uh, thank you guys so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Yes, take care. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening to Detours. For more content, you can find us on Spirit FM Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, or on our website at detours.life. To view my writings or to contact me for public speaking engagements, visit my website at debmarsalisi.com. Thank you.